Hey listeners, did you know that Yogi Triathlete offers endurance coaching for body and mind? We offer personalized training plans for endurance sports, wellness and mindset, nutrition and recovery guidance, and race preparation and strategy, all within the supportive community of Team Yogi Triathlete. So if you're ready to conquer your fitness goals and push your limits, our endurance coaches are ready to guide you on the journey to peak performance. Go to yogitriathlete.com today to set up your free 30-minute discovery call and embrace a future of strength, stamina, and achievement. Your goals, our experience, the perfect match for unstoppable success. I go through places, I'm hopeless at making decisions because I am I worry about, is it the right, is it the wrong? And then you can kind of just have to step back and go, you just need to make a decision and then go forward with that and fully commit to it. And then further down the line, if it doesn't work out or if it's not what you thought, reassess, readjust, turn around, go again. But while you're being indecisive and dithering, you're not getting anywhere and you're not getting anything done. So again, it's one of those that, you know, you don't want to look back in 10, 20 years time and and think, what if? Because you never tried. You'll always regret the things that you never did sort of thing. You'll never regret the things that you did, even if... You know, it wasn't the best. You'll always learn and something and you always regret it if you didn't do it. Welcome to the Yogi Triathlete Podcast. We are your hosts, Jess and BJ, and we're thrilled to share the mic today with professional triathlete, Laura Siddle. One of the great things about being in the endurance sports world for as long as we have, going on two decades now, has been watching the professional careers of so many triathletes along the way. Some we've had on the podcast who are just starting their careers, while other veterans of the sport have turned in their pro cards for a start at something new. And then there are the others, like our guest today, who continues to up-level their performances into their 40s. So much has shifted since Laura raced her first Ironman as an age grouper in 2009 in the sport and in her life, but what has stayed the same is her ability to grasp the W on race day. In her amateur years, Laura gained world championship status at multiple distances from sprint to half Ironman. Within her professional career, she has stood on countless podiums, and the most recent being at the grueling Patagon Man Extreme Triathlon, where she not only took the women's win, but was second overall, inclusive of the men's field. So that said, get ready to dive in with us as we welcome Laura Siddle to the show and smack down her amazing win in Chile. Laura, thank you so much for being here and being on the show with us today. Oh, I mean, well, thank you guys for having me on. Thank you for that um, amazing introduction. I, uh, you definitely did your uh, your research and I'm, uh, yeah, um, slightly nervous now, but looking forward to chatting. So thanks. Yeah. Thanks again for having me on the show. Yeah. Well, first of all, congratulations. Amazing, amazing uh, race. And one of our buddies and uh, friends that we've had on here multiple times, Troy um, Rodrigo, Troy RGC, uh, he might be even in your training pack. Uh, Such a good dude. And he's been down there quite a few times. So congratulations. Thank you. Um, But you did lead to that you're traveling. And I know that you're kind of like a nomad, like you're, you're kind of in different places, New Zealand, Girona. San Francisco, Boulder. Where are you now? And I guess, where are you going? <laughs> yeah, I'm, so yeah, I have been a bit of a nomad. A nomad. Um, firstly, Troy, um, yeah, he's a training partner. Troy, who I always get confused trying to find him in a race because he's got about 5 million names and I only know him as Troy. And I'm like, who is this? Oh, that's that's Troy. Um, no, I'm in Boulder at the moment. I've kind of been based here kind of more permanently since January. Um, but yes, I am procrastinating my packing at the moment. I'm just going home back to the UK for Christmas to see, see my parents and my sisters and see family for just a few days over the, over the holiday period. And then I'll be back out to Boulder. But yeah, I have lived in a fair few places, um, over the past few years. I'm yeah, from the UK originally, I moved to Australia with my corporate job at the time. And that's where I started triathlon. I was there for about seven years was in San Francisco, I guess, based for a couple of years and then ended up splitting my time summer to summer, Christchurch, New Zealand and Girona, Spain. Um, and then pre, that was pre-pandemic, um, just before the pandemic hit, I was actually based in New Zealand and left, left New Zealand for what I thought was just a five-week training camp 
and then the pandemic hits and I haven't been able to get back there. And that was, you know, that was 2020. And what are we about four years later? Um, so I was kind of then more based out of Girona, Spain for the last few years, but yeah, made the move to, to be based a little bit more in Boulder, more permanently, try and have, try and, I guess, settle. I don't know if that's the right word or at least have one base, but my, my coach, Julie Dibbins is based in Boulder and, um, She's got a squad and a, a great, great team here. I know you've spoken to Lawrence as well, who I, I work with um, here in Boulder. So yeah, that's where that's where I am at the moment. And you took Lawrence from us. <laughs> he was here <laughs> did, in, yeah. in California. He was in California. In, now he's with you guys. That's right. I'm, <laughs> I'm really intrigued to see how he's going to survive this first winter. Their, their place, their house they've got is beautiful. It's up in the mountains, but um, I know he loves his sun and his ocean and the and the water, and he's sort of swapped that for the mountains, which is still very relaxing and peaceful, but, um, yeah, we'll see how he copes with the, with the snow. Um, actually, now that we brought up Lawrence's name, um, and I do want to get into, uh, your win down in Chile, but, um, you know, one thing that we, we used to be able to just hop in the car and shoot up to Lawrence's and get our work and have, you know, an amazing conversation, which can range a myriad of subjects. You have no idea what he's going to be passionate on on the day. And it's just such a blast to talk with him. But um, the one thing that we really learned is like the gentleness um, of and the subtlety in his technique and what he teaches you. And as, you know, somebody who obviously has a competitive spirit. And I've listened, I've done my research, I've listened to some podcasts and I know that, you know, sitting around and being lazy is not really your MO. And not that Lawrence is teaching us to be lazy, but he is teaching us to be very gentle. Um, and so what, yeah, what has that learning curve been like for you uh, working with Lawrence? Yeah, he's, um, like you said, it's every time you go up there, even if he's doing sort of body work and stuff like that it's always something new and a different conversation and always picking up I started working with Lawrence actually during the pandemic um so I was in the UK and I just had some shoulder surgery and I was kind of struggling a little bit so my coach again Julie put me in contact and we went through some breathing work and and so it kind of started from that aspect um more of late um I've had like a, a hip a hamstring I don't know what you call it, niggle that I've been managing for a couple of years now. Um, and just never been able to get on top of it. Wasn't, it wasn't, it's never stopped me doing anything as such. Um, I've always been, obviously been able to train and race through, but it's just been something I've, I've managed and actually was, it's been, you know, would try and see Lawrence every now and again, if he came up here from California, but it was definitely made a difference when he, he moved up here and I could see him more regularly and just, yeah. So some actually, you know, some of the physical body work he's done was amazing. I just remember one session walking out of there and running the next day and my hip and hamstring felt like just turned a massive corner and I'd been like struggling it with it for 18 months and it had sort of never felt better. But yeah, just then the learnings around my running, um, you know, that trying to be at peace, at presence, feel the ground, open your hips up, open your chest up. Um, I'm keen to do a little bit more work with him going forward just on, you know, I don't, I don't sleep very well. Um, and, um, I'm really rubbish at holding my breath when I'm swimming, like underwater kind of, um, hypoxic stuff. So reading, you know, talking to him and then reading the recent article he put out as well. So interested to explore those kind of areas and just see if I can, yeah, utilize that calming, slow down, take a moment. Um, yeah, that kind of presence and energy that he has and, and hopefully, yeah, take that for use, utilize that as a performance benefit for me and just personally, um, as an athlete, but just personally, yeah, going forward into 2024. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Taking it way down. I know I feel like you go in and see him and it's like, he rubs your neck over here for like five minutes and then he rubs this side of the neck and then you're like, okay, off the table. Then your hamstring, then yeah. your hamstring is yeah. better. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and your hamstring is better. Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah. He did, um, he did something, uh, we're kind of going semi-tangentially here. Yeah. Um, so in May, I, I was hit by a car and suffered a brain bleed and, and had a concussion. And I got back to Boulder and went to see Lawrence and, um, 
he did something like right in the roof up in my mouth and then up my nose, which was very bizarre. And if it was anyone else, you'd be like, what the F are you doing kind of thing? But you know, cause it's Lawrence, you kind of trust him <laughs> and came out from there. And like one of the first things he said, he says, well, your eyes are a lot more level now than when you first came in. And of course I didn't notice any of that going in, but obviously I was all a bit skewed from my brain being chucked around in my head and, um, yeah, he definitely, he definitely had a, he was definitely influential and a big part of me coming back after, after that in May. Yeah. He's, uh, he's, you know, he's just somebody that is just fully continues to fully step into like the gifts he came to this earth to share. And we have all been, um, the recipients of that and just so, so grateful for him and grateful for, you know, even this medium that we're sharing right now with you being in Boulder and us being in California that we can connect, um, which is just incredible. So yeah, you've had a a hell of a year, uh, in May, you, um, that accident that you were talking about happened in Ironman Brazil. And, um, and now here you are, um, you know, sitting on the top of this race, this extreme triathlon, uh, Patagon man. And it's just, it's so, it's just, you never know which, how life can shift in an instant. And I'm sure you had moments. I'm going to assume you had moments over this year where you're like, am I going to come back? Am I ever going to be able to race again? Am I going to be able to do anything again? And then you just never know what's around the corner. Um, you know, and you have this incredible victory down in Chile. So yeah. Uh, how did that feel seeing where you've come since May? Yeah, I think, like it's been hectic the last few months. So I'm hoping that when I get on that flight on Thursday, I can just take some time to reflect back and like do that appreciation of what this year has been about and how far I've come. There were definitely times in those summer months in June, July that, yeah, I didn't know or we didn't know if, yeah, what I would get back to, if I would get back to the same level as I'd been before, what level that, you know, or, or, you know, or get back on a start line at all. Um, so that was pretty hard. I'd say kind of being given the opportunity to race in, in Kona, I was fortunate to be given a wild card. Um, that was kind of a big turning point and a hugely kind of emotional feeling to get to that finish, not just the start line, but to that finish line and kind of have the race that I did there. Um, and felt after that, that was, as I said, sort of a closing of a, a chapter to, to some extent or turning a corner in my recovery from the accident. Um, I'm still managing things. I think I've had a residual fatigue going on and then going into Pasagon Man um, that probably, and other kind of additional stresses that just affect me differently now with energy levels and, and fatigue and mood swings. Um, but yeah, it was an opportunity to go to somewhere completely different, um, go to a beautiful place and experience almost like grassroots triathlon again. You know, it's not a big, I mean, they've got a great brand, they've got a great team, but it's obviously not a big juggernaut of a brand of a race. Um, they just run that one race. Uh, it is kind of, you know, they, they advertise it as the triathlon at the end of the world. And it does certainly feel like that at times. Um, I did definitely, when I got down there, think what the hell have I signed up for? Kind of, I don't think I really, I kind of knew, you know, I'd been swimming in cold water. I'd known the weather forecast was looking pretty sketchy. Um, but I think I'd also been in some level of kind of denial or head in the sand just to get through with it. So when we kind of arrived down there and it was 50, 50 K an hour wind gusts and snow and rain and freezing cold. And I was seeing the course and I was just like, Oh my gosh, what have I done? This is like, this is literally just survival. Like you really, you're kind of trying to think of it as a race, but you also, that's kind of gets thrown out the window. Cause you're like, I, I don't actually know if I can finish this. I just have to get through the day. And so then you, it's really hard to think about a racing component to that as well. Um, but it was a really good opportunity off the back of the year to kind of, well, I, I've always tried to follow races that are in cool places and have like different locations and 
aren't your standard your standard racing so this definitely fitted that bill and it was yeah an opportunity off the back of the year to kind of try and feel pretty grateful for for being back on a start line and being able to experience you know swim bike running just somewhere different but a stunning stunning location and interact with the locals and the other mad people that do this sport and decided to do that race and um yeah share some stories the other thing i I really liked about it um, was the team aspect of like how you have to have a support crew with you or you have to have one official support person. Um, and, you know, much, there's always a team that goes behind us, you know, my coach, my strength coach, you know, someone like Lawrence or my nutritionist. And there's always a team that helps you get to that start line. But in most races, it's then kind of you on your own doing the execution of, of everything. Um but what I loved, I mean, I come from a team sport background anyway, but what I loved was the fact of having a support crew down there. So actually sharing, sharing the adventure with, with friends on leading up to the race on race day. And then, you know, the days, days afterwards as well. Who was your team? Um, who was this wonderful support crew that you had? <laughs> yeah. So I actually had, um, a couple of friends from Girona. So Sonia, and Walter, Sonia's a, a Kiwi and Walter's Belgium husband and wife, but they live in Girona now. So met them a few years ago, um, actually on a training camp. Sonia and I had the same coach uh, a few years back. So met that way. And then they're pretty nomadic like me. So, you know, we'd kind of move around the world in different places and meet up in Girona every now and again. And they actually now live there. And um, I was actually back in Girona after Kona for the Sagrail event and just chatting about Patagon Man. And I said, oh, I haven't finalized my crew yet. And Sonia just said, oh, you know, hold, hold the phone and, you know, I'll get back to you tomorrow. And I was kind of like, what she mean? And she sent me a text the next day saying, if you still need a crew, Walter and I are in. They spent six months traveling in Patagonia. So they absolutely love it. That was, you know, several years ago now. So they were keen to came to come out and Sonia was my official, official crew, official support, but Walter was amazing as well, doing a lot of the driving on race day and in the days leading up. So yeah, and they were, um, couldn't have asked for better, better support crew out there. Well, take us through the day. Like t- tell us like, cause we've heard that there was cold water. Uh, obviously there was weather moving in and it's something that you haven't done before. And I'm assuming it's your first time yeah. in Chile. Like how did this all, how did this all play out? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've actually, I raced in Puerto Varas, which is in the north, northern part of Chile, um, a challenge, challenge race at the beginning of the year. I've had a, a bit of a South American, um, uh, I don't know, theme to my racing this year. And I think I feel I've ticked the box um, with a good experience or not so good experience at Ironman Brazil and then an amazing experience in Patagon Man. Um, but yeah, so we arrived, got there like a week before and stayed in a place which is about halfway on the bike course, which was better to get, get out and explore the bike and, and things like that. And just a little bit, it's a very remote area. So there's not, the towns are pretty small. And so actually where the start of the race is, there's, there's nothing there, but the port. So we stayed a bit more centrally, but yeah, like just riding, you know, we didn't really see the tops of the mountains, didn't really, you know, I'd heard it was so beautiful, but I was really struggling to go I mean, it was stunning, but it was just different because it was gray. It was misty. It was, you got a bit of a glimpse of the mountains and then a thing with Chile as well. And Patagonia, the weather changes like within the hour, you kind of get four seasons in a day, in an hour. So, um, I rode a little bit of the bike course in the week leading up and scared myself to death because it was kind of howling wind. It was like snow over the top of the pass, um, like we we went past this waterfall and the water wasn't even falling. It was just coming over the top and then getting like blown across the side. And I was like, I am never going to be able to get through this race kind of thing. Or I am, but it's just going to take me all day. Um, and so then we moved out to the the race location and yeah, still the, the forecast on race day was really cold, snow, rain, um, and the feedback we were getting from the race team, the race director was just like, the water is really, really cold, but he wouldn't give us a temperature. He just kept saying it's really fucking cold. <laughs> um, so in the end, they kind of um, indicated that they're probably going to shorten the swim or, or do a different swim option. But they said they would confirm it on on race day when we're on the boat. 
Um, I mean, I was pretty, I say confident, that's a little bit wrong. Um, I had really good swim equipment. So I'm, I work with Deboer and they have a great thermal wetsuit. So it has a hood um, and then the wetsuit over the top and then gloves and boots. So literally I only, you know, the bit around my nose and, and mouth is sort of exposed. So I felt pretty confident in the equipment, but still swimming in what turned out to be um, eight degrees C. So I think that's like 46 Fahrenheit or something. Um, I was pretty happy in the end on race day. They said it was about a 2K swim. It was about half distance. Um, and I, I was definitely happy about that. You know, I'm quite happy not being in the water for an hour or so doing a full distance. But I mean, race day, we were in the end, we were super lucky. We got down to transition and for starters, it was dry. So it was cold, but it was dry. And that was a good thing because setting up everything in the wet would have just been, you know, just a miserable start to the day. And then you you get on the boat um, at about 4 a.m. and it's still sort of pitch black. And um, I I was wearing, I had the boots on already, but I also had hotel slippers on, uh, <laughs> which was actually a real win because obviously the floor of the boat is still pretty cold. Um, and it was definitely gr- a good thing to keep me a little bit warmer. Um, I found a, it's like a car ferry, but there was like a lounge area upstairs with like comfy seats and it was nice and warm. And I was like, I found this area. And I was like, this is brilliant. I'm just going to sit up here. There's only a couple of other people up here. Everyone else is sort of down on the, on the exposed cold car deck. And then the race director came up about five minutes later and was like, nope, you're not allowed to sit in this nice, comfy, <laughs> comfy lounge. You've got to kind of appreciate the, or, or experience the true extreme by, by going down on deck. So, um, ended up sort of finding a little corner by the engine room. So there's a little bit of warmth there. Um, but yeah, you, you set off in the dark and, um, you're really kind of at that point, we didn't know how long the swim was going to be. We didn't know what the weather was going to turn out for the day. You're just sort of on this boat. You're not really sure of time. Like I didn't have a watch on at that point. So you're just sort of trying to stay warm and, um, ended up just before we sort of started, they said, yeah, it's about a half distance because the water is so cold. Um, and the other thing they say is once they're ready to make, to uh, let you jump off the boat, ready to start, they're kind of like, don't come to the front unless you are ready to jump. Because if you don't jump, you're going to get pushed kind of thing. Cause once the first people start entering the water, we have to get everyone in to then start the race. So, um, I was at a, at, was chatting to an American girl, an age grouper, and she was so excited for the race. And she was so excited about this experience that I think it actually helped calm me down a little bit rather than the other way of sort of the the professional trying to calm down the others. Um, So yeah, got in the water and actually, I think I'd built it up to be so cold that it actually wasn't as bad as I was expecting. I mean, it was cold, but I was like, okay. And I think as well, like the fact that I knew it was half the distance was kind of a little bit comforting. But the thing that did it for me was, you know, I, I got in the water, I swam out to where they had some kayaks lined up, which was a start line. And I just then turned around to look back at the boat. So looked back at the boat and saw all the other athletes jumping on. And at this point, because of the shorter distance, they'd sort of delayed the start. So it was starting to get a bit light. Um, and I just saw this incredible clear sky, like just starting to get light stars. And then this amazing backdrop of snow capped mountains, just like popping out behind this boat lit up with this mouth open of this boat and all these athletes jumping off. And I was just like, that's it. That's, that's kind of what, all I'm here for. Uh, you know, I'm kind of done. I'm ha- I'm happy. That's ticking the box. It was just an incredible memory or, you know, incredible vision. And, um, so after that, like the swim, I mean, it, I had a pretty solid swim. It was nothing amazing. I don't know whether I was, had relaxed too much from seeing this amazing view or just when it's that cold, you can't swim overly too fast with the, the wetsuit and stuff. But, um, the main thing when I came out, I, I don't know about sixth position overall, which is quite, quite a rarity for me. So I think I was sort of laughing to myself <laughs> that I was quite far up the field um, got into transition. Sonia was great. She'd laid out all my kit. We decided because it was so cold, the weather. So it was still, whilst it was dry at this point, 
um, it was still between like one and five degrees C temperature. And um, we decided that the main, one of the main things about getting through the race was to be keeping the body temperature warm. So I just got a swimsuit on underneath my wetsuit. So did a full strip into um, cycling kit and leggings and Gore-Tex jacket and space blanket and <laughs> boots with boots over shoes with a heat packs in them and gloves with heat packs in them. And my first bottle on the bike was hot water. Um, so did that. And uh, yeah, and we were just so incredibly lucky after the forecast, we just had what turned out to be clear blue skies all day. And it was still cold. Like I didn't take off any of those layers over the full bike course, um, which involves a fair bit of climbing. And a lot of people made the mistake of as they started to climb, they kind of started stripping layers. Um, but then we had like a really fast 20 kilometer descent to trans to T2 and everyone then froze, everyone who'd taken layers off mm. then froze. So I kind of knew about that. So I just kept the layers on and, and stayed warm. I did remove, I had a space blanket when I discarded that, um, when I did start climbing, but that was the only thing I took off. Um, yeah, the bike course, I was kind of on my own for the first part of it. Um, and then a couple of guys joined me just before halfway and we kind of cat and mouse a little bit. And then, um, one of them dropped off and there was myself and another guy but he kept stopping with his support crew and taking layers off or he'd got a flat tire. So pumping tire. So I'd then sort of carry on on my own and then he'd catch back up. But, um, yeah, the, it's an A to B, uh, bike course. Um, and you've obviously your support is sort of leapfrogging you. And at the start you can see where everyone else is cause their support crews like leapfrog around mm-hmm. you and you can kind of have an idea of numbers. And then it, it got quieter in the middle as you kind of, as we stretched out, um, put out the road surface is pretty rough. It's pretty slow going. Um, far of quite a few gravel sections as well. And not like the nice, I don't know, Boulder, Colorado, I'm sure Californian gravel and Girona gravel. It's like actual gravel sections where they just haven't finished the road. <laughs> it's just like road work, <laughs> like rocks and stuff. So you had to be pretty careful there um, potholes as well, where, you know, if you hit one of those, you kind of lose yourself down a crater, um, a few stray dogs running out at you. Um, but yeah, just treated to kind of incredible, stunning scenery. Um, so yeah, I came in, I think I got into the, and again, Sonia was awesome. Uh, she'd already mapped out like a few days before, like the best, best places where she could be, they could pull over in the car and, we knew whether I wanted bottles or gels and we were kind of able to talk and stuff. So that was, that worked really well. Um, and then I got into T2, I think like, I think in third, uh, just behind the guy, the guy in second and the, the male pro winner, he was kind of well up the road. And again, she kind of laid everything out. Um, so again, I did kind of a full, full change, uh, which is quite funny. I also had a, <laughs> I also had a film crew with me who were filming a documentary for the race and there's no change tents or anything. You literally are just changing on like T1 was just like a car park on the side of the the dock. And then T2 was just like a side street in a little tiny village where they just sort of put a, um, you know, a bit like just a triathlon training session with your local tri-cub where you just sort of have a, have a frame for the bikes and stuff. So it's a bit like that. And I come in and I'm like, just, I've got like however many cameras on me and I'm like, I'm about to strip, just letting you know I'm going to get a <laughs> street kind of thing. Um, so yeah, I just did a full, full strip into, um, like running shorts and, and t-shirt. And, um, then the run is, so the one thing that the, the bike course is slightly short and the run course is slightly long. So it's about 44 kilometers. So maybe about a mile, a mile longer than a normal marathon. And for the, it's all on trail. So all, which is just amazing. And predominantly the first half of the marathon or the first half of the run is predominantly uphill and then you downhill. Um, but also for the first 30 kilometers, you are on your own with no support crew. So there are a couple of aid stations, but they weren't entirely sure where they were going to be set up. (laughs) They said approximately 10 and 20 kilometers. Um, but that was it. And then at 
you can you can meet your support crew at 30 kilometers and they're able to run or ride the last 14 kilometers to the finish with you um so I set off with like so you have to be pretty self-sufficient so I had a a running vest with water and um precision hydration fluid and then gels and stuff with me um and didn't see anybody I well I passed the guy in second in the first kind of mile or so and then didn't see anyone until apart from one farmer and his dog um didn't see anyone until the 30k mark and it's just yeah just spectacular um you're running kind of on like the first 8k is up this very sandy single track and then you join a gravel road and then you just follow the gravel road for the rest of the the rest of the run um, which just like undulates goes up and down and around these lakes and again we just with the blue sky you just had the snow-capped mountains just popping against the blue and the lake and um, I walked I walked most of the uphills at the start, like the really steep sections, just trying to keep the heart rate down and keep it controlled. Um, obviously, you're kind of semi-panicked because everyone's so spread out at this point and you, you, you can't get you – I didn't get any splits in T2 as to where people were. So you're just hoping you've got a bit of a buffer and when you're walking up these steep sections, you're kind of convincing yourself going – I don't think anyone else can walk up these sections. Like it's impossible to walk up or if they are running up, they're going to be like screwed later on in the race. Cause it's just so ridiculous. Um, yeah. And then I got really excited. I was just like, you just need to get to 30 K like that's it. And then once you've got somebody with you, it's going to be, <laughs> it's going to be easy. Um, and I got to the 30 K and Sonia, we'd hired her a mountain bike or an e- a gravel e-bike, which was great. And I think I got so excited that I started like talking to her and trying to tell her all the stories of the day. And then it was like that realization of going, yeah, you still have 14 kilometers to run. <laughs> like You've still got a third of the race to go. You might want to shut up and uh, conserve your energy. And um, yeah, she was great at saying, okay, yeah, you've got, it's predominantly downhill now. There's a couple of pinches uphill still to go, but then you should get the tailwind and and things like that. So and at the 30k mark, I was able to get a split to how far I was behind the winner or behind the guy in front and also to anyone behind me. But of course, those splits were from T2 and that was 30 kilometers ago. So you kind of had no, like, I was like, okay, I had a nice buffer there, but who knows what's happened in the last like two hours of this race. Um, but again, still didn't really see anyone and it's funny, the last mile of the race is you're back on the like a tarmac road and you're running downhill. You've got like a tailwind that you don't really feel because you never do at that point. And you can just see the lake at the bottom and you see the flags and you're starting to hear the cheering and stuff. And it's there's this the thing with Patagon Man, they they have a bell at the finish line that is this infamous bell that everyone rings. And also for the the winners, the male and the female winner, they have a gate that they then open. Now it's a little bit odd because the bell you'd you'd think that the gate would open to reveal the bell, but actually the bell is in front of the gate, so it's a little bit confusing. But so I'm running down, and I don't know. I, I, at this point, I, I think I was just looking forward to finishing. Like I was, it was an amazing day, but I was kind of just more relief that I'd got through it and and things. And I, I sort of start approaching this gate and I can see that it's shut and I'm kind of thinking, Oh, do I, do I have to open it? Like, or do they open it? Like, what's the deal here? I, I'm not really sure. And I'm getting closer and closer and I can just see this crowd of people like surrounding the gate. And as I'm coming up, I'm like, Oh, they can't get it open. Like the gate is locked shut and they're struggling to open it. What do I do? Do I slow down and like give them more time? But I'm like, I don't really want to slow down. I kind of want to get this thing over and done with. <laughs> but I kind of get there and the gate's shut and there's all these people like what had happened is they'd, because it was so windy and stuff, they'd closed the gate, but they had to tie it because it, the wind kept blowing it open, but the wind was still buffeting it. And so every time it got buffeted, it would tighten the knots. So then when they came to open it, they couldn't actually undo the knot. So I get there to the end of this race and I'm like, the gate's still shut and there's all these people like trying to panic and open it. I'm like, okay, but the bell's here. So do I ring the bell or do I wait <laughs> in the gate or do I run back up the road and stuff? So it was quite amusing. I ended up ringing the bell um, 
and then kind of walked around a bit and a, a few, it, it didn't take too long a few seconds later they, they managed to open the gate so we went through went through everything again but it was um yeah it was quite funny a funny way to uh to finish finish the day but yeah I uh I caught a it's like a two and a half minute video on the 2023 race I don't know if that's if there's a longer documentary that will be coming out or has it come out I I wasn't able to find it but um yeah, the the documentary's kind of come out next year. Oh, so they okay. they did a full. I don't know how long it's going to be, but they followed three of us through the race. Well, in the days, so they came to Boulder and filmed oh, me training, gosh. and then in race week, and then race day, and a few things afterwards. Oh, so, nice, yeah. nice. Well, yeah. the two and a half minutes I was watching it uh, earlier today, and it I like I was able to see that gorgeous day that you guys had, and oh my gosh, the views and um. And I, I love that your description of this, it, it feels like, um, you know, like Ironman triathlon, which is, you know, it's so neat and tidy. It's all on, you know, if there's a pothole, like people are going to complain about it, you know, like. Well, if it's over 26 miles. Yeah. If it's over 26.2 miles. Well, this, this, is, this is the funny thing. So people were getting shitty and they were complaining <laughs> that they'd cut the swim in half. Okay. And I'm like, do you realize for a lot of the average people doing this race, they could be in the water for two hours and it's eight degrees. That's like, that is not safe from a race. I fully supported the race for doing that, but they were complaining going, Oh, I'm fed up of races, getting the swim shack canceled and all of this. And I'm like, hang on a minute. The bike course is short and the run course is long, but you're not complaining about that. Like you're only worried about the swim. Like it, and I wanted to say to people it, and I think this is what you might have been saying. And before I jumped in, but Patagon, Matt, it, it's not about ticking off the distances. Like, no. yes, it is a iron distance approximately, but there is so much more and so many more challenges that go on that to be fixated on whether it's 3.8K or 2K and it's 174 kilometers, not 180, and it's an extra mile on the run kind of thing. Like, just look up and look around you and look where you are and appreciate just swim, bike and running over some ridiculous distances. But yeah, it's, it doesn't need to be exact. Getting to that, you know, you're going from one side of Patagonia to the other side. That's pretty cool. And ringing that bell at the end and just having this amazing local support, like, and the weather, you know, what the weather throws at you, what the road, like, you've got to pick it for those reasons. Like, and, and they, they try and say like, this isn't an Ironman race. If you want to do Ironman, you've, you know, you're in the wrong place. So appreciate this for being at the bottom of the earth. And yeah, that's, that's definitely what it's about. Well, that's what I think is so funny about it. It's like this Ironman, right? And we know what comes along with that. And, there, you know, we can, we can stereotype a, you know, a mass personality there. Um, but then it's like you go into, if you've ever done like an ultra, you will go into the ultra world. It's like, you know, a 50K can be, I don't know, 36 miles. You, you just never know. You don't know. Like, you know, sometimes the course is marked great. Sometimes <laughs> right. it's not. Sometimes there's an aid yep. station. Sometimes it's, you know, 10 miles away. And I love this. We see a lot of, we're seeing a lot more crossover between ultra and, and triathlon. And, and I'm loving this crossover. And I feel like, um, the extreme triathlons are bringing these two worlds, uh, together. But what we're also seeing is like women are really like they're thriving at this in these types of extreme triathlons. Like as a woman who just crushed it out there, what do you think the qualities are of, of, women that um it's like the the playing fields being leveled i think so you know that there was still a handful of women in passing on man compared to the men but i think that that goes back further in terms of just women need to have the belief that they can do it and there's obviously a lot of other things that go on in lives that women feel responsible for and don't feel they have the time or or feel maybe selfish enough to do the sport, which I think I hopefully will change. But once the women do enter and do get to a race, I think women just have this incredible endurance base and particularly as we get older and they're just able to kind of, I think, and this is probably, you know, no disrespect to the men and I'm obviously doing sweeping statements here, but that kind of logical problem solving and just being able to get through a day and deal with things that are thrown up and, literally just like stubbornness kind of 
gut it out. But there is that, I think, females, and I'm sure someone can pick me up on the science, but do have, again, stereotypically a better endurance base as the distances go longer and those things get get tougher and tougher and it's it's just a case of making the women believe that and that believe that they can be on a start line and they can commit to a race and that they do deserve to be able to have those opportunities um and once we sort of start yeah getting more women to believe that they they deserve to be there. They're just as good as, as anyone else. I ho- I'm hoping we'll see even more women, the ability to take on, take on these races. If, if they, and if they want to, I mean, it doesn't have to be a huge endurance race. It can be a 5k. It can be a, uh, you know, an open water swim, whatever it is. Um, but you know, if it is that endurance, endurance side of the sport, you know, women, I hope they start to see and believe that they are incredible at, uh, racing those endurance events. Well, I think it's so cool when professional triathletes like yourself, uh, you know, Leanda Cave crushed it at Ultraman Canada. We did a interview with her and I went, did she, wasn't she like second overall? Did she win it overall or something like that? Like it was, you know, like out of the top, whatever, five, you know, the majority of it was women. And so I think as, um, you know, more women like you, like leading off the front and, and doing these races. It's funny, a friend of ours did Norseman and that was, you know, her, her feedback too. And she's done, um, you know, starvation man out in Utah is just like, you know, you can do like, if you, if this is on your heart, if this is something that like sparks something for you and you're a woman, like you can do this. I mean, anyone, right. We, we don't, men can do it too, but, um, but it is a a wonderful message to be sending out there. And I think that, I think we're going to continue to see it, it growing. It's a mindset, mindset shift. Yeah. Yeah. It's It's a mindset shift. And you've talked, you've talked, you've got a strong mindset. I've heard you say, and maybe this is the negotiation of the mind where you're like, I'm okay to move back home with my family, (laughs) my mom and dad, if they, you know, if, I make them aware of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll tell you a story on that one. Yeah, in a minute. Yeah, but you have this. It's that shift. It's like it's okay. That's the worst that can happen. Okay. Well, I've got to pursue. I've got to. I've got to take this to the edge and see it for myself. I need to experience it myself. I'm not going to read a book about it or ask someone else about it. I need to experience it. And I think that that mindset shift is is what we need to see more of um, all over. I think. I think it's a game changer. Yeah. yeah. No, you're right. I'll tell you, I'll tell you a, a quick, again, a quick side story. When I, when it was, um, when COVID hit and I was kind of a bit stuck on where to go because I couldn't go back to New Zealand and didn't want to because of, you know, everything would look like it was shutting down and I couldn't stay in the US. So I, and then I was about to go back to Spain, but they went into this horrific lockdown. So I ended up sort of, my sister said, you know, why don't you come back to the UK um, we've kind of locked my, we locked my parents down cause they were, you know, they're in their seventies and we wanted to keep them safe. So she's like, why don't you come back to the UK, come and stay with me for two or three weeks while this blows over. <laughs> she regretted that six months later. Didn't she? <laughs> so when we talk about, you know, I could go back to my parents' house. I'm not sure my, whether they uh, feel the same about that, but, <laughs> for things, but yes, the concept is that that is, you know, if that's the worst that happens, it's, it's not, you know, I'm, in a very fortunate position that other people aren't. So, yeah. I think it's a good thing to look at. Like we've had to do that too. We've taken many risks in our life and, um, you know, we'll look at like, okay, what's the worst. And we've had the same thing. What's the worst case scenario. I'm like, okay, we like, we move back to Cape Cod, Massachusetts and we live in my pink bedroom that I grew up in. Like, (laughs) and we squeeze into my twin bed. Like that's the worst thing. And well, that's not that bad. And so let's just go for it. Let's do it. You know, whatever it is that we're, that we're doing. And you have, um, this motto that everybody, uh, will never, will never let you forget about every podcast I heard with you on it. Um, they talk about it, but I think it's a really important one is, um, you know, don't die wondering. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so how does that continue to, uh, show up for you in, in your decision making? <laughs> um, I have to say it gets a little bit harder as you get older. I think you become more risk averse about things. And, um, you know, I'm definitely, you know, it's crazy. Even little things like riding my bike now, like having a couple of accidents, I'm definitely more like conscious of traffic and, you know, descending and stuff like that, or going skiing, you know, I've living in Boulder, I've, 
been able to do get some skis and go skinning which I love so walking up the mountain and then skiing down but I'm definitely like very apprehensive and and because I don't do it enough but you know coming down the mountain and there's those you know fear factors that come into your head I think as you get older and you realize your body isn't quite as um unbreakable as you thought it was when you were a youngster and that you could do anything um but yeah I still try and live by that motto to be like you know again it's kind of that what's the worst it can that can happen and you know also if the the worst decisions are being indecisive like there's not necessarily a right or wrong decision but you've just got to make a decision and go with it and if it doesn't work out that door closes another door opens and you then make a decision you know I always I spent a bit of time in the military as well and that was always one of the things we learned was like the the worst leader that's a little bit strong but the worst people are if you just can't make a decision and I I go through places I'm hopeless at making decisions because I'm I worry about is it the right is it the wrong and then you can kind of just have to step back and go you just need to make a decision and then go forward with that and fully commit to it and then further down the line, if it doesn't work out or if it's not what you thought, reassess, readjust, turn around, go again. But while you're not, while you're being indecisive and dithering, you're not getting anywhere and you're not getting anything done. So that a little bit is that don't die wondering. It kind of like, again, it's one of those that, you know, you don't want to look back in 10, 20 years time and and think what if, because you never tried. Um you know, and what is it? You always forget, you always regret, you'll always regret the things that you never did sort of thing. You'll never regret the things that you did, even if, you know, it wasn't the best, you'll always learn and something and you always regret it if you didn't do it. So yeah, I still try and try and fall back onto that. If I am in a kind of coming to a crossroads or coming to a, coming to a turning point. Is there a sense of relief once you make that decision out of all that turmoil? Yeah. Yeah, massively. Yeah. Cause I, I'm a, I'm an overthinker as well. I always have been an overthinker, over warrior. And so I turn myself in knots thinking, I don't know what to do. What's the right decision? Well, is this going to please people? Like, you know, all that kind of thing. And ultimately just get, create more stress for yourself, more fatigue for yourself, more uncertainty. And you actually, I actually just, and it's funny because you know you have to make a decision, but every time you do it, you still go in that same cycle. You know, I'm obviously not a quick learner either, <laughs> but it's just that. What? Yeah, and again, like I said, it's once you've made the decision, regardless of what it is, you just there is a sense of relief, and you can go, okay, I've made the decision. Now, what falls out of that? Okay, A, B, C, D. Right, done. Let's get on and do it. Um, and so you can be kind of pragmatic about that, and, and then move forward. Yeah. How about um since we're on this topic, we're kind of talking about mind mindset and, and relationship to thoughts and stuff. You were, you were, you were out of commission for a little while and, and set to just like do nothing. Um, <laughs> and how was that experience? And, and what was, what was the conversation going on? And, and maybe how did you work through that to, to bring yourself out of it? Yeah. So, um, after the accident in Brazil, um, I kind of, you know, pre-race it'd been, 30 hours a week of training, kind of one of the, the best shapes I'd been in in my life, although I probably didn't realize it and appreciate it at the time because you're kind of so fixated on on racing and the, the anxiety that goes with that. And and then afterwards, yeah, it was nothing and wasn't allowed to do anything, was just allowed to go for a couple of 20-minute walks a day and that was it. And then lots of resting and uh, and I've never done that before in my life. Like... I've always played sport as a kid growing up. I've always been active. I've always was, you know, at school and sport before and after school and like just always been so busy and never been that a good person, a good professional athlete at napping in the day and taking that recovery. And even, you know, even in an off season as an athlete, you, because it's such a way of life for us, you are still active and doing stuff like whether that's, just hiking, walking, gravel riding, you know, that, that's just who we are as athletes. Like we want to still be active, but you're just doing sport or be you're exercising rather than training as such. Um, and so, yeah, to then have this 
period of time where it was just nothing, wasn't allowed to do anything but but walking. And um, that was really strange and it was really odd. Um, But at the same time, because of the nature of the injury, you can't read, you can't watch TV, you can't watch films because you're trying to limit your screen time. So everything we stereotypically fall back on these days to relax, you know, social media, Instagram, Netflix, whatever it is. Like I couldn't do that either. So you kind of suddenly have everything removed. So um, I got into audiobooks. I'm still into audio, but I mean, I've always been a fan of podcasts um, and listening to podcasts, but I um, started listening to audiobooks, which I really found is a huge, and I still do that now. So that's been really amazing. Um my coach, Julie Dibbons, was amazing at lending me her dog <laughs> to take for walks. So I had my therapy dog, Dakota, um, who was amazing because they just are happy to see you and to throw a ball and getting out in nature. And um, yeah, and I guess like just appreciating different things. You know, it was funny. We do a, we have a run, a run loop here in Boulder that we've done, I mean, I've lost track. It's called Monarch Road. It's mm-hmm. in the Boulder 70.3 course. And, you know, I've run it so many times I've lost track of it. But in those early days when I couldn't do anything but walk, I was, Julie would great. She'd pick me up because I couldn't drive either. So she'd pick me up and still take me to the session. And then the guys would all go off and run and I would walk. And I saw houses along this road that I have never seen before. I was like, oh my God, I didn't know that house existed. You know, like you, your eyes are just opened up to a whole new world of observing, taking in, um, yeah, things you'd never seen before. Um, but yeah, it, it was tough. And then it was just a case of kind of getting the all clear and slowly, slowly working things back, working with people like Lawrence, working on doing a lot of like balance and juggling and hand-eye coordination things again and having a good team around me that believed that we could still kind of, or gave me like the small goals, gave me a little bit of structure, kept checking in on me um, and, and, and put a plan in place that we then slowly at the right times could increase that, you know, first of all, it was starting riding just on the indoor trainer and just super, low stress stuff. And again, still not looking at streams. So yes, I had Zwift on, but I couldn't look at it kind of thing. Cause that would make my eyes hurt and give me headaches. And then eventually sort of getting the all clear to ride outside. And Julie was great. She came with me on those first few rides. Um, always checking in and monitoring, like, are you getting symptoms is being outside seeing, you know, having too much stimulation, um, but again, and in those early days, you know, taking me to sessions. So whilst I wasn't able to do the training, I could still be on pool deck watching or being involved and engaging with people rather than just being kind of like stuck at stuck at home on your own, which I also get like huge cabin fever anyway. So I needed to get out and, and that's where, yeah, she was really good like that. And yeah, just believing that like it was hard. And like I said earlier, there were times where I was like, I don't know if I'm going to get back. I don't, and I don't know what that looks like. Um, but I'm going to kind of keep going and doing what everything I can do it to the best of my ability to, yeah, to, to make those steps every day. I also took up crocheting, sorry, as oh, a new nice. hobby. Oh, I love that. <laughs> Which is described, so this, this is the thing, like you get in this world of social media is obviously, you know, you start having a conversation about it with a friend and then suddenly you get all the adverts on your Instagram feed. And so, start, and it's advertised as this like, it's relaxing, it's stress-free, it's time to switch off. And I was like, okay, this is perfect. Like I can't look at screens it's something to do. It should be relaxing. 
I can tell you it is not relaxing. It is very stressful. Like, like you're trying to like see these tiny little stitches, then you've done it wrong. And you have to do it again. You're trying to follow the instructions. <laughs> totally. <laughs> this is not, this is, this is false advertising. This is not what it's described as. No, I'm right there with you. When we first got married, I was like, I'm going to knit my husband a hat for Christmas. Like how romantic it was. It was the funniest. It was like a big, huge, to, it was to, supposed to be, it was supposed to be a cool little beanie (laughs) it ended up being like this long like stocking like rustafarian hat and it was it was christmas eve and i was like four glasses of wine in and i was like god damn it i'm gonna get this done and i was you know and you're just my face hurts and oh my god it was so it was so stressful and i don't think i've knitted a thing since but but I've changed a lot since then so maybe I'll come back and see if I can get the relaxing vibe um (laughs) I I know you said like you know you're gonna get on the plane and you've had a lot to process this year um and uh and now this you know latest amazing achievement down in in Chile but looking back um you know any any blessings from the year, any, any gifts? And, and it's, it's not like, um, you know, like, oh, it's all been positive because it hasn't. And it's, and it sounds like it's been really, really tough, but I, I do believe that everything happens, you know, for our greatest good. And I'm just curious if you've, uh, recognized anything that's been, uh, been a blessing for you. I mean, first and foremost, that I'm here kind of thing. Um, you know, I was found unconscious on the road and the people that found me kind of thought the worst. Um, I still don't remember anything about what happened, which again, I think is a blessing kind of, I think that's our Mm -hmm. body's amazing way at protecting us. Um, you know, also grateful that in reality I had, you know, I didn't, nothing was broken you know, yes, I had a a brain bleed, but which has the thing is with brain injuries as well. Like it's so different from person to person and no one really knows. And like some people suffer straight away and then some people suffer like two or three years down the line. And I didn't have any huge symptoms at the start apart from obviously kind of, and we did take things super easy. So just managing that fatigue, but I didn't suffer with lights and oh, not overly like light sensitivity or, or noise sensitivity, which was, you know, I was incredibly grateful for. Um, yes, I've managed then things sort of longer, like the fatigue energy levels does hit differently. And coming back was kind of really grounding, like, you know, sessions that I had done previously and, you know, they were hard sessions, but not really thought about it. It was just something I did. And, as we'd sort of built back up, I'd do a similar session and it would just wipe me out for the rest of the day and I'd have to lie down and nap and I literally couldn't do anything else. I think, you know, one thing I'd like to probably carry on and it's very quickly gone back to how it was before was that opportunity to nap and rest and to almost clear the computer uh, because I had a reason. And I noticed that, yeah, with, with doing that, it definitely affected my mood for the better. Like, you know, you're in a happier, more energy place. Whereas as soon as I started bringing back in the laptop, the computer, the screens, the work, I see the energy levels and the emotions go up and down again. Um, But it's very hard to kind of, yeah, control that and go back. So I think, you know, seeing having that opportunity to sort to learn and see those benefit of that rest and sleep and recovery, even though I've probably gone back to old habits. Um, you know, and then I think, you know, just, yeah, the opportunity, you know, things like then being able to sort my hip out or, or things like that, that maybe I wouldn't have had cause I'd have just plowed through, through training. Um, I think the other thing it made me realize I was fortunate enough. I was meant to race challenge Roth um, and obviously couldn't after the accident, but I was fortunate enough to still go over and work with the team. And, and I've done that a few races, seen races from the other side, but that 
you know, made me realize that, you know, when something is something that you love is taken away from you that, or when something is taken away from you, you realize how much it means to you. I think that's probably the right way of putting it. So like how much the sport does, does mean to me when you, when it's taken away and you can kind of go back to that feeling incredibly grateful for the opportunity that you, that I have as a professional athlete and the choices Mm. I've made. Um, so yeah, there's a lot. I mean, I hope, like I said, I'll, the last few months, I think sort of since, um, since Kona have been pretty hectic and I probably haven't given my, I've probably kind of defaulted back into a lot of things and haven't given myself the chance to just stop and appreciate where I've, what I've done this year. Um, and also, you know, with, with athletes and I don't know it might, whether it's a, a female or a British thing, or I don't know, or just me, um, we very quickly move on to the next. We very quickly kind of don't give ourselves the time to acknowledge and to be grateful and to recognize and celebrate things. And we're already kind of looking to how to be better and what's the next goal and stuff like that. And I think I need to this year more than ever, probably take a step back and just, yeah, re not necessarily reevaluate, but just, yeah, go, go over, reflect, go over things. Refle- yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. But it's very, it's a very non-British thing to do as well. <laughs> so it doesn't feel, <laughs> doesn't feel hugely natural to me. And so that's another thing I need to kind of work on better at like appreciating, appreciating that and reflecting back. Yeah. Well, that's the, that's the gift in all, in all these, these things is like, it's pointing us in the direction of you're not good at that or you're uncomfortable with that. Well, that's the work. That's the work yeah. and because the patterns of what we do in training as athletes, it gets so, you get into such a rhythm, such a routine and it's like second nature. And then we step back and you're like, well, wait a minute, what's happening here? Um, yeah. There's something else to learn. And so, I mean, we've been in it, like we said, like 20 years and I'm still learning about, you know, what I do is swimming, biking and running. And I love it. I, I hope to not let these moments of injury or suffering be the stimulus, but it's sometimes that contrast that we need to, to kind of wake yeah. up, wake up a little bit. Um, so you have a, uh, yeah, we've got to wrap this up, but, um, Kona, uh, a love hate relationship with Kona. Well, next year it's, uh, nice. Nice. So, uh, is there yeah. any, any aspirations or, or have you already qualified or aspirations? For I haven't, any? no, I haven't already qualified. Um, so yeah, look, my, I think my love-hate relationship with Kona went back from my early years as a professional and I always raced a lot because I never had the confidence that I was a Kona athlete or that I could put all my, and also like, yeah, we don't do it for the money, but you've got to earn a living and make it sustainable. So to, to not race and just put all your eggs in one basket of Kona, that just wasn't going to work for me. So I'd always raced a lot, which perhaps meant that I turned up to Kona not in, you know, maybe with more fatigue in my legs than, than you kind of realize. And then you're competing against the best women in the world who are focused on this race. So, and I always kind of had this, yeah, the love hate relationship with the circus and the hype that went with it and the media and the industry and, and, and look, and the infatuation with age groupers kind of thing. I was like, there are much more stunning races out there around the world. You know, it's not the most exciting course, but you know, I think a change of coach and working with Julie and the belief that she has in me and the results that we achieved when it was then in St. George as a start. So the, when the, so the Ironman World Championship was in St. George and that is a course that suits me. And, you know, I came seventh there and then she sort of put the seed in my head of going, oh, don't you think it'd be awesome to do like two top tens in two world championships in the same year? And I kind of was like, yeah, but I can't, you know, I'm never going to get top 10 in Kona. That's just not who I am. And so it was her belief. So I, and then, uh, you know, seeing it last year and I understand why it's so special to people to race there. I understand the magic, the mystique, the history it has, and I respect that immensely. And I think the last two years have kind of changed my, I'd probably go to more of, 
am not fully in love with it, but I appreciate it and love it and respect it and want to be part of it a lot more than I probably used to. Um, going forward to Nice, um, that is probably not a course that suits me, um, particularly, you know, as you are, you do get older and, um, the standard of women's racing is just, it's brilliant at the moment and it's just going rapidly higher and higher. Um, but my, so my goal is I'm going to go back to New Zealand and race in early in the year, which I'm super excited about to, to get back to New Zealand because I've not, not been back there. Also, my friend's super excited because I'll finally get to pick up all my stuff that she's, she's kindly been storing for the last four years in her spare room. Um, and at the moment, and this may change, like my, you know, if I get a slot for Nice in New Zealand, I'll take it um, because I think we just have to be grateful for those opportunities. I'm not going to get many more of them like that, you know, in my career. If I don't get a slot in New Zealand, um, my current thinking is I probably won't chase it. Um, I want to do Challenge Roth again, and that's always the middle of the year. Um, however, I'm also really bad at FOMO and a fear of missing out. So <laughs> there's quite a big chance that like I'll get partway through the year and really don't want to miss out on not being on the start line in Nice and getting to experience that. You know, I think it's great for the sport and I kind of, it's one of the reasons I wanted to be in Kona this year was to support an all female event. And so it's a bit the same in, in Nice kind of want to support an all female day of racing. I, I would say I, I love the two separate days of racing, but I would like us to be in the same location, but that's, yeah, that's yeah, not yeah. I agree. Yeah. So we do the best that we can with what we've got. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, uh, all right, well, we'll be, uh, we'll be cheering you on at Ironman New Zealand and, um, yep willing that you grab that spot. We'll, uh, we'll be manifesting that vision with, along with you and, uh, challenge Roth and, um, just congratulations on, wow. What a, what a year, uh, lots of ups, lots of downs, some really big peaks and valleys, but, uh, here you are and super grateful to have this conversation. Thanks for making time prior to the holidays. And, uh, we are not going to allow you to procrastinate your packing anymore. <laughs> so we can carry on talking because I've got packing that I don't want to get on with. <laughs> you, need, you need to pack. And um, yeah, we'll, uh, I, we will, uh, we'll be watching. And how do people follow you? Where are you most active? Um, yeah, most active on Instagram, actually, which is at LMSID. Um, a little bit on Facebook and, and Twitter, but mainly, yeah, mainly on Instagram. So yeah, more than happy for people to reach out there and, and send me messages. And if people are at races and stuff, I love to connect with connect with people. So, so yeah. Amazing. Well, cool. thank you so much. We're so grateful. No, thank you so much for having me on. I've really, really enjoyed talking to you both. So thank you. Thank you.